The world has changed. I can feel it in the dice. I feel it in the character sheets. I smell it in the books. Much that once was is lost, for none now gain who remember it. Welcome to The One Podcast, a show all about the One Ring and experiencing Middle-earth through gaming, with your hosts, J.M., Richard, Ben, Calvin, and Chris. Well, welcome back to the Green Dragon Inn. Uh, Your fellowship has gathered to bring you more Tales of the One podcast. Uh, Tonight we are sadly without Ben, but we do have uh, Christopher, Richard, and Calvin. Greetings. Uh, Hello, Internet. That was not a good follow-up. I I had to bring it back. Um, So this is our first episode, or this will be our first recording, but second episode in 2016. And today we are doing the second in our series on cultures. But first, we're going to add a little segment to the show where we kind of let you in on kind of what we're doing gaming-wise when we're not diligently researching and recording the one podcast. So, uh, Richard, why don't we start with you? You actually are running uh, a One Ring game, so why don't you tell us what's new in gaming for you? Yes. Um, <clears throat> well, recently, my party, which is made up of a dwarf slayer, or was <clears throat> was made up of a dwarf slayer, a Bayorning warden, a woodman warden and an elf scholar, a wood elf scholar. Um, they were on their way from uh, Lake Town to uh, Woodman Hall, and they uh, decided um, at the instigation of the dwarf that they uh, could save a lot of time, shave a lot of time off the journey um, if they took a shortcut through the old uh, via the old dwarf road through Mirkwood. Um, they rolled some truly, truly awful hazard rolls on the way and uh, all right in the middle of Mirkwood managed to get the um to activate the hunt um the the the, the hunt mechanic in in the Rivendell book and so <clears throat> about um probably a day or two into Mirkwood they got bushwhacked by about 18 forest goblins and a basilisk um um Yes, they, um, uh, the dwarf uh, chose to make a courageous last stand against the goblins um, to give his, uh, give his comrades a little time to escape. They escaped and ran straight into the basilisk, who um, sent the elf fleeing in terror um, blindly through the woods um, and proceeded to kill both the Bjorning and the woodwoman. Um, we came extremely close to a total party kill after about a year of playing with this party. Um, um, but the elf, the elf, um, quite remarkably, um, she wandered away, got completely lost in the maze of the haunted hills, um, nearly eaten by a spider, but she actually managed to bluff her way out of it. And, um, eventually after about two months of wandering through the woods, literally one endurance away from falling unconscious and just dying in the woods she managed to make it um back to home and uh so we picked up um monday with a uh um a couple of different things one is a story i'm going to stay save 
um, for a little bit later because it's talking about how to maybe out in the game, and that's what we'll be talking about today. Um, but the other thing we did is 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 that Lou Marin, the elf, held a funeral for her comrades. And, oh, um, awesome. And uh, so I worked with a player um, over the course of about two weeks to compose uh, three short elegy poems for the uh, for for the the funeral, and um, and there were some tears. I'm sure Ben would be willing to admit to uh, a, a few tears if you were here tonight. So it was a pretty good. It's pretty satisfying session, and everybody's got new characters. We have a spunky hobbit lass, um, another dwarf played by a different player this time and um and a woman of lake town so should be quite interesting to see where the campaign goes from here very cool uh christopher i think you were going to make a comment about how all dwarves make last stands as they should that's right <laughs> it's always it's just you know you, they fought against goblins it's, it's it's usually better if it's against elves <laughs> <laughs> That's the only kind of stands his dwarf army knows how to make is last stands against elves. It's, that's, 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 not, that's not an exaggeration at all. Uh, <laughs> well, let's move to you, uh, Christopher. Uh, what do you have going on gaming-wise? Well, um, our group just recently wrapped up the Dresden Files game that Calvin was running. And Which was awesome. This was fantastic. And we're about to start a Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition. And besides that, I've been playing in your Dragon King's thirteenth age game. Yes. Which is also fantastic. Excellent. Other than, other than that, it's uh, it's, uh, it's about it. Not as uh, not as in depth as Richard, but uh, that's what I've been doing. <laughs> what about you, Calvin? Uh, well, as uh, Christopher mentioned. Uh, wrapped up uh, running the Dresden Files and uh, thoroughly enjoyed running that game, but uh, I'm okay never running Fate again. Amen. <laughs> uh, and looking forward to uh, not being behind the GM screen for this uh, fifth edition game that we're about to start. Well, and I have, let's see, what have I been up to? I am running two games right now. Well, uh, three, including the Dragon Kings playtest. But I'm running a new Monera game for uh, Richard and some of the other people not on the show. Uh, ben is in that game. And our last session was uh, very I don't really intense. Talk about it. it was very intense. <laughs> um, the, the group met. They had trouble fighting one of these creatures. They're known as dancers. Uh, and they met three of them. Uh, two of the people ended up getting kind of fused into some sort of two-headed, three-limbed monstrosity. Um, well, they were kind of monstrous before the fusing, uh, but they made it They made it out uh, by the skin of their teeth and then got betrayed by uh, the person who had sent them down to the depths of the city. So we'll have to see how that plays out on Monday. Um, and then I'm torturing, uh, running a game of Shadows of Estrin, and... Uh, we had characters lose eyes. Uh, the same character who lost an eye to a crow ended up uh, liquefying some dead bodies to make curative tonics for his party, but did not tell them where it came from. So that should be that should be rather interesting. Why is everybody you play with so damaged, JM? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you have not played in a JM game for very long. I well, th I thought you had. Uh, the uh, 
the players totally didn't pick up on the fact that I kept asking them how much they were eating and how much they were drinking of this food that these this mountain couple set in front of them. And it wasn't until uh, the sleeping herbs started to kick in that they realized that this cabin that they had taken shelter in was the home of uh, some uh, mountain cannibals and uh, fighting while drowsy. So fighting in Estrin is... They're banjos. Yeah, there were banjos, but it, it's already lethal. Like, it's a very lethal system, and fighting with, you know, drowsy penalties, like drug penalties, was... was it was uh, it was a rough night. Like, uh, they were prepared for a TPK, but they had some pretty clutch rolls uh, that saved the day, so... Well, excellent. That, that'll be a, a new segment that we do, just kind of keeping you guys updated on games that we're running. But let's get into... Cultures. Tonight we are talking about uh, the Bayornings, who they are in the Legendarium, what they are in the game, why you should play them, how you should run them, that sort of thing. Uh, so let's jump right into it. Uh, Christopher, game-wise, who are the Bayornings? Well, you know, I, I've been trying to come up with a, a, a role that they would inhabit if you turn talk about like game terms, kind of like when we were talking about the men of Dale and how they were kind of like this baseline human. Whereas the Bjornings are interesting because they're not this, what, like the men of Dale or the men of the lake or these quote-unquote civilized people or people like uh, the woodmen who, you know, they're, they're not to say they aren't civilized, but they, they don't live in cities, um, kind of um, more... Um, what do I want to call it? Um, totally lost my train of thought right there. Um, you know, they're more the, the rugged human beings, whereas the Bjornings, they, I mean, their their entire culture, you could say, revolves around being part of 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 this group led by Bjorn. Yeah, so they're right they're right almost now. a almost a cult of personality in yeah, some ways. Yes, yes. That that's much better than what I just read. <laughs> <laughs> um, they actually just you know I, I I reread it you know just about probably an hour ago and they really kind of remind me of 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 Vikings in a way, just the way they're described to me anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean. That's just kind of what I, I like them. I like them because they are different. They're not. They're not. Um, like 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 we were just talking about. They're not part of a a city. They're not part of this group that that follows like like the woodmen. There they kind of you know they listen to Radagast or, or or whatnot. They are this cult of personality focused on dealing. I think that's pretty cool. Anything to add there, Calvin? Uh, no, I when I was reading through it, what what really jumped out to me is they really read to me like a berserker or a barbarian almost. Um, these are people who were who've left their clans, and there was you know several mentions of rage and anger and violence, and <laughs> it just it it gave a very very much of that berserker type vibe to me. Mm. Um, if you were going to compare it to something in like you know your standard D and D setting, 
That's fair. Uh, one of the things that like kind of really popped for me and got my mind racing on um, kind of cla- uh, like characters that I would play, and uh, Richard, you can correct me if any of this is uh, too outside of left field, but uh, we're talking five years after The Hobbit, right? The events of the uh, five years after the Battle of the Five Rings or Five Armies. Yes. Um, so. Mo- there are no Bjorning children who could be adventurers at this point. These are still people who have gathered or gathered around Bayarn and Karak, having left other cultures. So I would totally view this as a chance to play somebody who was, you know, maybe I was a men, men of Dale and never fit in or outcasts who have rallied to this this man's banner because they had no other place that they fit. Yeah, there could definitely be um, be some cases like that. I think also, obviously, there's this whole, I mean, basically all of the, the cultures of humans that we're going to be talking about, certainly in the core book, are um they're all northmen they're all um Mm -hmm. um so you know culturally similar but there's also um more organized civilization of the northmen on the east side of mirkwood with dale and lake town versus the versus the men of the vales of anduin and when you're looking at the Vale of anduin i mean it's a it's an enormous expansive territory and there are a lot of um you know northmen that are Organized, obviously, you have the woodmen who are a good example, but mm-hmm. there, are, there are just you. You also have to imagine there are a lot of wood uh, Northmen up and down the Vale of Anduin who may be organized by small tribal groups or small family groups and things like that. And there's some some hints of stuff of stuff like that in the Heart of the Wild book or the supplement. Mm-hmm. But the um, but yeah, I see Bayorn as as uh, we'll, we'll talk about sort of the role in the of the Bayornings in the. Legendarium in a moment, as people are gathering around Bayorn because mm-hmm. of, you know, because because of basically his his personal charisma and his, you know, he's, I mean, um, before before the podcast started, Jan, we were talking a little bit about the the Iceland Icelander sagas and yes. uh, and I think Christopher just mentioned Vikings, um, and I think that's actually a pretty solid analogy for what we're looking at here. There's a few analogies in the Legendarium I'll mention in a moment as well. But the, you know, just, just the idea that, that you know, in, in the Northern heroic culture of, of our own real history, which you really have, you know, you don't have monarchies that are passed on from father to son, you know, in, the, in like the fifth and the sixth century, what you have is really charismatic leaders who people would sort of flock around because that was the person who could get things done. So would a would a more would a closer analogy be like Rothgar and the Danes? Um, a little bit, except that the Danes are almost really too established for that. Um, okay. Uh, what what you're looking at is really what ended up ha- happening after Hrothgar and the and the and the and the uh, Yeats and and all those different you know, long dynasties basically get wiped out. There's a, there's actually a huge, um, 
upheaval we know from the archaeological records that that takes place um, right there around the time that Beowulf is supposed to be set right after that when all these big dynasties come crashing down there are probably a, a variety of reasons in the aftermath what you get is groups like um, oh uh, a good a good example might be um, you know the the, the groups who the groups of of Angles and Saxons and Jutes who end up uh, end up showing up in in, in the British Isles, okay. um, and they're organized around these very charismatic personal leaders. Obviously, famously, Hengist uh, 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 and Horsa, although Horsa may or may not be real, but um, I guess Hengist may or may not be real for that matter. But he seems more he seems more plausible. Anyway, uh, basically, you get these these very charismatic, essentially war leaders. Is really what they are, and it's not—it's not this dynasty that is necessarily. It's not assumed that it's being passed down from father to son. It's who's the most powerful guy, who can get the job done, who can sort of unite us against a common end. Cool. Well, you mentioned where they fit in the legendarium. Let's yeah. jump over there. Sure. Okay. Um, so we uh, in the legendarium, obviously, the whole thing starts out with uh, just one guy named Bayorn. Um, Bayorn is an old English word, which means bear. Um, um, however, it comes to mean man or specifically warrior um, in sort of the Anglo-Saxon poetic parlance. The Anglo-Saxon poetic vocabulary has a, a, an incredible number of words for man or warrior or nobleman. Um, and uh, Bayorn is, ends up being one of those words. So when you see the, the word Bayorn, um, obviously there's this bear implication, which is quite literally realized in the book. But there is also this sense of um, the fact that he's a he's a freeman, like he's a freeholder. He owns his own land, and I think that's the that's the one thing you can sort of say about Bayorn is that um, he sets his own boundaries. He sets his own place and his own you know basically makes his own place in the world. And um, if there's anything which I think is kind of an, a, a defining feature of the Bayornings, it is that sense of freedom. It is that sense that that we are here. Because, you know, I mean, I sort of feel like the in, in some sense the Bayornings are probably the grumpy libertarians of Wilderland, and they really just want to be, like, left alone, and that's sort of why they're here and why they're doing what they're doing, and don't cross us. Um, uh, in, the, in The Hobbit, there is a, um, there's a scene in which, or, or basically we're told, you know, about a, a scene in which Bayorn gets together with several bears from um you know several other bears you know and there's a great big meeting of them and um the question that this always raises for me is are these other skin changers like bayorn or are they um or are they just like actual bears which he talks to when he's a bear and i think that sort of left nebulous for us and i think that gives you some good uh place to sort of play into a, a good gap to sort of play into with your own bayorn characters uh, now the skin changer is a um that is a very, very important trope in um, in Norse mythology, and uh, that's that's something that Tolkien is carrying over here. Well, and there's we're never we're never given any, if as as far as I remember, we're never given any hint in The Hobbit of why Beorn is a skin changer, aside from Gandalf's kind of very cryptic. He's under no spell but his own. Um, no Gase but his own, correct? Well, yeah, no spell but his own. Um, okay. Gase is, is not in The Hobbit, but okay. um, 
although it's a it's a very interesting idea. But um, the um, there are there are two theories which Gandalf actually puts forward in the Hobbit. One is that he is a descendant of bears who lived in the Misty Mountain basically before the giants came. Um, or, and the goblins came, or that he was a descendant of men who had lived in the region before the arrival of dragons or orcs from the north. Um, Gandalf says he believes the second is more likely, um, but just as to why Beorn is capable of um, of this uh, uh, skin changing is not... It, it's not mentioned. It's one of those things that you uh, encounter in Tolkien, and there are many of these things which don't seem to fall into the, you know, a, a neat category. And uh, Bayorn is definitely one of those things. Um, he's, he's sort of a grumpy Tom Bombadil in that regard. So I guess, I guess kind of wrapping back around to what Chris had said, where he's like, you know, he was looking for somebody, he was looking for something as succinct as he said last time, where like bardings are kind of your baseline humans. Right. I guess would you would you guys agree that maybe bay earnings are for those people who just kind of want to want be to the outcasts. They want to be the guy who doesn't really fit into Wilderland as neatly as some of these other cultures do. They want to play the half orc barbarian. <laughs> you know, it's it's not even so much I think that the bay earnings don't fit as the bay earnings make themselves fit. Like Okay. You know, it's it's not it's not just that they're outcasts. Many of them may have begun that way. I, I sort of imagine, you know, most of the there's a word for this sort of person in Anglo-Saxon. It's racha, which is where we get um, wretch from. But it, it, it doesn't Saxon. It means outcast. It means, but it means somebody who is in the sense that the exile could be self-imposed. It could be mm-hmm. I've decided that. I'm not happy with my situation at home and maybe I don't have as good a seat in the hall as I want or I don't have as much money as I want or I don't have this or that. And so I'm going to go out into the world and make my way with my sword and with my axe. And that's, I think, I think the Bayordics would definitely lend themselves really well to that. So two things. Thank you for pronouncing Racha. Because uh, that's not how I would have pronounced it and that plays very much into my campaign idea. So... Oh. Well, there you go. Uh, yeah. So let's talk. Uh, Calvin or Christopher, do you have anything to add legendarium-wise before we? Just to make sure that we are clear on this, though, although Bayorning, or although Bayorn is a skin changer, Bayornings are not. That um, is correct. Uh, uh, you can you can get you can get a a cultural virtue, but it doesn't actually. It is more of like a spirit walking than a skin changing. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You sound I, disappointed. <laughs> well, I don't know, I've thought about this quite a bit because because I had a player who had it, and um, looking at the the fact that the spirit ward forms of the Hillmen of Gundabad um, have stats and and can fight, um, uh. I sort of I sort of decided that it would make sense for for your spear form to be able to do that as well. Um, and it's just well, it's just sort of a yeah. So in the actual, well, I guess we can get to that probably when we get to the, you know, the virtues. But it does say that any, you know, any damage that you take reverts you back to your body immediately. It does say that. I I didn't if, like if that. If we're looking at rules yes. written, yeah. right? No, no, that's and uh, and uh, so uh, that just brings up a really interesting. Uh, 
point, one of my, on a complete side note, one of my favorite uh, gaming worlds is Glorantha. And uh, they are always very clear that your, your Glorantha will vary. Like here's the baseline and GMs and players will twist it from there. And I think that's a, I think Calvin has a good point that's, you know, bringing up the rules as written. And I think Richard has a good point saying, hey, you know, this brings it a little bit more in line with kind of how I will be honest, when I first read the Bjornings, I wanted to turn into a bear, and I was a little disappointed that all I got to do was turn into a spirit bear. So. Understandably. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's jump into the mechanics of things for a second. So I'll, this was what I was going to give to Ben, so I'll jump in and do this. Um, so as we kind of talked about, the Bjornings are not a, a wealthy people. You know, they, they have kind of left city and... Uh, as Richard said, you know, it's, it, there's a little bit of like an exile feel. Uh, so they're a martial culture. So don't expect, you know, if you're a Bayarning, pal up with the men of uh, the Barding or the men of the lake. Um, but their cultural blessing is furious. And this is, really I mean, cool. this kind of, yeah, it's really cool. It kind of plays into the whole um Wildman, Viking, Norse kind of feel. So when a Bjorning uh, is in combat, he ignores, when he's a wounded Bjorning, ignores the effects of being weary. What I, how I read this, and Richard, you've run this more recently, so, you know, uh, let me know what your thoughts are. It says, even if he wasn't wounded in, or became weary in this fight. So that means... If you're worried because of your travel hazards or anything like that, as soon as combat breaks out, you do kind of shrug that off. Your, your, your blood gets up, and you just ignore those effects. Right. Yeah, yeah. You just you power through it, and you count your ones, twos, and threes. Yeah. Um, we uh, the Bayorning in, in in my group who who did recently um, die. Um, he um, he uh, uh, played this to the hilt, and he was constantly getting wounded, like to the point it sort of started to be a little laughable. Um, but the good news about his being wounded is that usually when he got wounded, he was pretty low on endurance anyway, so he was probably already weary. So when he was wounded, he got to sort of ignore that in a fight, and that was something that was just really thematic about uh, about the character, and and the, and the player played him very well. Yeah, and that also brings up another good point. If you're just weary because of travel but not wounded, you still suffer the penalties. It's not until right. you've taken that wound and your 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 furiousness takes over that it actually kicks in. Yeah, so the one thing that I was just going to bring up is uh, starting skills. Don't expect your Bjorning to be able to talk to anybody well at all it's you know kind of actually counter to you know this is that they are not sensitive to other cultures and uh so this really is you know your standoffish or just brash almost uh from a social standpoint, I will now, say okay. I will say from a social standpoint, Art Bayording was actually quite effective, and the reason 
is that big warnings start out with the three in awe. And when you're doing your introductions, which is how every social encounter starts, getting the Bayorning to slap his chest a little bit and shake his spear, doesn't that doesn't work with you know people like the Elven King or somebody, but it gets you a really long way. Um, and uh, and uh, the other thing I think is really interesting is that the Bayornings don't have a lot in you know say persuade or inspire or anything like that when they start, but they do have, uh, they start with a three in insight. Interesting, because if you think about the way that Bayorn is portrayed in The Hobbit, he's this very intimidating person, but he's also this, you know, he's not just a dumb, stupid barbarian. Like, he sees through things. And uh, and I think they did a good job of reflecting that in your in your starting skills. Mm-hmm. So, so what you're saying is let the Bayorn grab everyone's attention and then step aside so that the eloquent Hobbit can can then seal the deal. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, and so, you know, one of the other things that you get for, uh, from your culture is your starting traits. And I find it very interesting that like the, that two of them really stood out to me, the Anduin lore. And as uh, Richard said, you know, these are men from the Vale of Anduin. That's a huge chunk of the map to, have a lore trait for. Um, but then I also really like the fact that they have storytelling. Those would probably be my two starting traits because storytelling, like like everything in, in uh, the One Ring, has a very important place to it. And there are a lot of ways that you can use storytelling, the storytelling trait, over the course of even like Tales of the Wilderland, which we talked about. Wait. Or, or even Tales from Wilderland. That's what I was going to... Ah! Or Tales from Wilderland, <laughs> like we talked about. Just I'm going to start punching myself in the face every time I say Wilderland. Um, every time you say it wrong, a philologist dies. There's only like six left, right? There's only six of them. <laughs> yeah, well, that last Beowulf conference really, really uh, thinned the herd. Yes. I think you just take a shot whenever JM says Wilderland. All right, if you're listening and you want a drinking game, that'll probably continue for a very, very long time. Um, so, uh, cultural virtues and rewards. What kind of stood out to you guys? We talked about we talked a little bit about the spirit bear. Uh, Callan, you want to give us a little rundown on what that is to start? Uh, so this one is night goer, and uh, basically this allows you to slip into a dreamlike state. You can uh, leave your body and swiftly travel Uh, along tracks made by animals for the length and breadth of the Wilderland. So you can can spend hope, a point of hope, to go explore a place that you have, or that you, that is within three days of travel of where you're at, and you could basically stay out until sunrise. Um, You look like a bear, it's visible to anyone around, so it's not like you're you're not necessarily going to be invisible to people, but um, you would resolve any any test that you would make as as normal using your normal attributes. Uh, but any rules as written, any harm that you suffer while traveling will just revert you back to your body. Very cool. I can see why basically anyone would want to pick that up. Maybe maybe if they had had the uh, the nightgoer, your party would have been able to scout out those uh, goblins and basilisks. 
Well, I've got the rest of that story whenever you look for it. Because <laughs> um, it does come up. Does it? It does. All right, at the end of the state, now you guys have to listen to the whole episode so that you can hear the rest of Richard's story. Uh, it's not a bug, it's a feature. Um, so for me, twice-baked honey cakes is the yes. one I would take. Um, Agreed. I mean, first of all, fellowship rating increased by one point, and you reduce the difficulty of all fatigue tests equal to your wisdom rating. Dang. Um... Like not all right. So first of all, thematically, I just love the idea about being able to to bake these. It would be like being able to make lemons. By the way, one of my players actually has a recipe for twice baked honey cakes, which he brings to games. Yeah, and they are delicious and amazing. <laughs> uh, one of one of our friends on uh, out here for our one of the uh, Lord of the Rings LCG nights found a recipe online from like a Tolkien cookbook on Lembus and made Lembus for us that was delicious. Yes. So what about you guys? What stands out? I mean, did we cover those? Are there any ones that you're like, no, this is the one, this is it. Those are the two I really liked. Of the rewards, um, I will say the giant slaying spear is pretty darn cool. Um, and uh, that, that's actually the, the cultural reward which my Bang Learning player started with, and, uh, and he loved it. And that was always the first question that he would ask anytime we were fighting any monster. Um, you know, is, is this thing greater than human size? Is it greater than human size? What about the spider? Is this, is this greater than human size? And uh, um, yeah, of the, of the cultural rewards, and their cultural rewards are maybe some of them not quite as interesting to me, but the giant slaying spirit is pretty darn cool. Uh, for for me, it was the uh, the twice baked honey cakes. That's what I yeah. what I would take. And uh, you know the the rewards were nice, uh, but there wasn't really anything that jumped out at me as this would really improve my enjoyment of my character. And uh, mm. I I will be honest. And this may just be the way I approach characters. For me, the virtues always stand out more than the rewards. Like if I were to play, I think I would always take a higher wisdom than valor. Mm. But then you get into fights and you're gonna be like, why did I take a higher wisdom? I just need a giant <laughs> slaying spear. That's all I need. Yeah, it really depends on where you are planning on standing in the combat order. Yes. Well, and that's that's kind of a good point because um, the two the two recommended callings this will kind of dovetail nicely into our why do you why would you play a Bjorning um, the two suggested callings are Slayer and Warden um, the Bjornings are not you know their their unusual calling is Treasure Hunter. If you're playing a Bjorning, chances are you're wanting to play towards the front of a fight. So, Jam, that actually brings up a really interesting point, and this, but it's like a, a maybe a, a, an add-on to that. If you look at some of the cultural rewards for or, or virtues, rather, for Bjornings, some of these things, I mean, obviously, skin coat, great strength, those both both make you pretty good in combat. 
But Night Goer and Twice Baked Honey Cakes, if you think about those, it really starts to feel more like uh, like you could you could have a very interesting scouting role for the party. Yes, those things, you know, with with the ability to uh, uh, succeed more easily at fatigue test, and the ability to also in your you know while you were sleeping, go out into you know the, you know three days of travel, like explore the area around you and see what you're, what you're going to be up again up against next. I think that could be um, that could just make it for a really interesting character like you don't have to play him as the you know I, I think a lot of times maybe a little bit because of D&D when we think of you know a role like the Bjorning like we immediately go to this guy is a barbarian and he's there mm-hmm. to deal damage and you don't have to play him that way um, in fact you know because they don't have access to the, the same level of armor perhaps as, as some other races like dwarves this may not be your tank character this character may be somebody who's very capable at handling themselves in the wilderness and Mm -hmm. makes a good scout or lookout for that reason well and the other thing that kind of struck me along those same lines is the fact that so we've talked about how the the bayornings have this kind of um i'm going to use exile because pronouncing recha did i say that right is it recha more or less that was a pity Loretta? Loretta. Loretta. Okay. So, exile feel to them. Um, Twice Baked Honey Cakes and even Nyko are kind of, it almost feels like, it's the kind of character you would, you would take those if your character was really concerned about more than just himself, the group, almost as if he is trying to establish a new community with these people with him, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like... Twice baked honey cakes you're taking for the good of these people you're traveling with. That's actually uh, that's a super interesting comment because there's a moment where they're mentioned in the Fellowship of the Ring, and uh, as about them, um, you know, basically says something complimentary about them, but then he says, but they don't give those to strangers. Yeah, we kind of chatted a little bit on why you would play a Bjorning, and I'm going to go with uh, with Richard uh, on the the more. I see him almost as more of a skirmisher than a frontline tank fighter, if that makes sense. Right. Kind of the guy who is a little bit more in tune with what's going on, very insightful. Uh, what about you and uh, what about Calvin and Christopher? What, what are your thoughts on why would you play a Bjorn? For for me, uh, this would be the character that I I would go to a Bjorning, you know, for that outdoorsman feel, uh, almost the mountain man feel, uh, you know. Mm. This isn't, you know, your person living in the forest necessarily, although that's pretty much where they live. But this, to me, feels more like the grizzly old man up in the mountains by himself. Uh, doesn't like strangers, but if you get to know him and you get on his good side, you're set for life. And I, I think that could be a lot of fun to play, you know. I would probably go with the, you know, not necessarily the scout role uh, that you guys were talking about, but more, you know, the focusing on their their combat prowess that they do have and uh, making use of that. Christopher? Well, I mean, Bjorning was never really something I was like, you know, when I, when I saw it, 
read about it that I wanted to play, um, but just talking about it now, it actually is is interesting. Interesting me more than it was. Um, I just you know if if I wanted to play something different because they're not you know your usual mannish cult culture. They're not dwarves. We know. Yeah. Come on. Well, they're not yeah, elves. They're not elves. Like, the whole reason that you don't like Bayornings is because Bayorn doesn't like dwarves. And you're just like, well, well screw you, Bayorn. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. I, if, if if I had a, an urge to play something different, because I definitely think they are they're, – they're pretty different from from – other the other cultures, not just you know elves and dwarves, but just from the other um, cultures of man in the game. So I really like that, you know, aspect of it. But yeah, I would probably have um, some kind of, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I can definitely see see a, like a a, a Bjorning warden, you know, kind of that 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 would probably be what I would. I would play is 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 uh, yeah gravitate towards that more. Yeah. What about you, Richard? If you were if you were to get the chance, you know, when Ben runs your his uh, the One Ring game, why would you play a Bjorning? Um, I would play a Bjorning to play Turin Turinbar as a Bjorning. Hmm. That. That fits with the whole exile and outcast the, feel. The, the, the part of Turin's story that I have had specifically in mind is actually the part where, where he's with the Garwaith, um, the, basically the outlaws that he, he falls in with after he leaves Doriath. And, uh, and these are a bunch of, of, of basically not super good people who are, are existing together on the fringes of society basically because they need each other to survive and Turin basically takes them and and transforms them into this this um, orc hunting force that lives in the wilderness and goes by stealth and waylays orc bands and that's what I would do as a big warning I would live in the wilderness and go by stealth and waylay orc bands <laughs> well okay that's a perfect segment into how to run an all day warning game because um <laughs> My two, I, I had two ideas uh, for an all bay orning game, and one is, like, for a campaign, you don't need anything more than an all bay orning group. You're in the Misty Mountains. You're, you know, the the Karak is kind of centrally located. Goblin Town's in the Misty Mountains to the north. You have Moria to the south. What more do you need? That's an entire adventure about holding firm against an unrelenting tide of foes who wants to you know wipe you out of the math so they have easy access to anduin um uh oh and it's pronounced karak 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 uh i get a lot of pity uh texts (laughs) from richard doing this because uh well, the, the funny thing about Carrick is it is actually two different words that both, uh, it, it's a portmanteau of two different words that both mean really big rock. So it's the, it's the rock rock. It's the rock rock. And, and doesn't Gandalf say, because it's his word for it. Right. And this is just his word for this one as well. Like, yeah, I think that's actually a really, that tells you something really useful about Bayorn though, if you think about it, because naming something 
is a it is a way of claiming power over it. Like it's a way of, mm -hmm. of claiming not not power is not the right word. Dominion is a mm -hmm. way of claiming dominion, and that is what Bayorn ha has done. Like it's yes. it's it's this is there are many carrots, but this one is the carrot because I say so. Right, Carrick. Okay, Carrick, Wilderland, Recha. Very good. Well done. Put, the, put those yeah. shot glasses down. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Uh, really, the whole reason that I started this podcast is because there was a bunch of words I didn't know how to pronounce and was too embarrassed. And, and Richard, Richard, another one. Uh, is it Yates? Yeats? Um, it's actually Yeats. Yeats. Okay. See, that's four words today. Like, I'm already a better person now than when I started this podcast. Um, the other idea I had was more for a how do you focus on Bayornings in a, in a situation. And if, if, you're, if you're Bayorning, and this, this might take a little bit of more effort on your part with the player, but ask them, ask them why, why were they drawn to this, to Bayorn? Because if they give you any sort of, you know, idea that, like Richard was talking about, I, I went into exile for my own reasons, or I was forced into exile, there's all sorts of plots that you can come up with with going back to that. Um, shadows of the past come out, and why you left has suddenly caught up with you. It happens to Turin a number of times, and... I feel like that could be a, just a really cool way to spotlight this. Yes, you've left your past behind and are forging this new free future for yourself, but that doesn't necessarily mean that what you left behind isn't still searching for you. So, all right, Richard, what about you? What are your, how would you use these? How would you do an all Bayorn How would you do an um, all Bayorning campaign and spotlight them? An all Bayorn. Um, again, just because I'm in a tour and tour and bar mood, I think I think what I would do is um, the the Bayornings in, in Lord of the Rings. It is mentioned that the Bayornings charge very heavy tolls for passage through their lands, um, but in return for that, they basically keep the the path all the way from the fords of the Anduin to the the high pass um, essentially clear of goblins. And so I think what I would do is um, I would pit the Bayornings against a very savvy and cunning goblin leader um, and, uh, and who would be sort of the main antagonist for the campaign. And I would say, you know, here, you know, you'd start out as here, you're a group of Bayornings which have been sent to guard the high pass or to, you're, you're taking a toll, so you, perhaps you are, you are, you know, as part of that toll, you are escorting, you know, giving safe conduct to these passengers who are trying to get over the, the high pass. Um, there's an attack, um, and you have to start dealing with the outcome of that. And basically, over the years, um, you know, the that that growing dynamic of um, a, a rising goblin power in the Misty Mountains again, versus um, the the Bayornings trying to essentially hold on to this this little territory which they've established. Very cool. Now in a in a uh, in a game session, how would you highlight how would you turn the spotlight on the uh, the Bayorning character? Uh, a lot of different 
Um, a, a big thing to do is to look at the traits that the Bjornian character has taken, and obviously some of that will sort of depend on their uh, their the, the background that they chose for themselves. Um, but some of the Bjornian traits um, really lend themselves well. Um, things like um, I'm trying to think of a couple of a couple of the ones. Um, Anduin lore, of course, comes up a, a fair amount when you're traveling the area of the Anduin, but also things like grim. Or reckless, you know, you know, if if you have a if you have a character who is reckless, you know, give them opportunities and sort of point out, hey, I think this is where your recklessness would come in. Um, as far as uh, highlighting the Beordings specifically, um, the Beordings have, um, you know, I think we have a tendency sometimes to the cultures in Middle Earth as all sort of being this monolithic good. Uh, as a, you know, opposed to the evil of the shadow, but really, it's it's not quite that simple. And um, the Bjornings are this culture which have reasonably friendship friendly relationships with most of the cultures around them. But they're not they're I wouldn't go so far as to say that they're like like allies or like. You know, it's it's a little it's a little more complicated than that. And the the Bjornings are a very proud people, and I think they're very much on their dignity and probably very sensitive to insults. And so that's the kind of thing that I would I would want to call out with a Bjorning player would be. You know, you, your culture has a little bit of a chip on its shoulder just by virtue of being this culture which sort of exists on the fringes of other societies. You know, comparatively organized societies like the Woods, the Woodmen, or uh, you know, obviously the Men of Dale. Right. Now, uh, any let me before we jump into the Lord of the Rings as campaign ideas, any other thoughts, Christopher Calvin, on spotlighting or campaign ideas? Um, for me, I would uh, I would go back to um the the night goer cultural virtue and it says you you you're in spirit form but you're you're visible to onlookers you leave tracks on the ground so you're in spirit form but you still have an effect on the physical world so what's to say you can't encounter something also in spirit form something in the spirit world you encounter something you could have a whole encounter with this bjorning and you know, it, it stumbles on something or maybe something seeks it out. Mm. Um, you know, I just, I just keep seeing, um, for whatever reason, I don't know why when Frodo puts on the ring and he sees the, the, the Nazgul, um, not as, as, you know, um, not, not as they see them in the physical world, but when he sees them and, you know, the, the, the ghostly forms, um, and then, you know, a spirit bear comes in and rescues him, you know, or, or something similar to that. I don't know. That's just what I, what I saw and kept going with. It's actually what I've been thinking about as, as, um, you know, we've, we've gone on with this, with, with this recording. I'm like, that's, that's, that's a, that's a scene I want to play out. Very cool. Yeah. Calvin. Well, I, I think taking the party to Bayorn's house, and giving that player then the chance to 
to be the main interaction point, right? Because he's no longer the outsider anymore. Yeah. This gets him a chance to play opposite of what he has to play everywhere else. Yeah. That's awesome, Calvin. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Oh, yeah, that's a great point. Um, well, just to spark your guys' imagination, to spark our listeners' imaginations, and let them kind of have some thoughts on how do they fit into this 80-year period and then even into uh, the war against Shadow. Yeah, um, the the Beornings, um, basically... Basic, based on some things in the Fellowship of the Ring, specifically things that Gloin and Gimli both say, um, it appears that uh, essentially Beorn, um, you know, after after the event, the Battle of the Five Armies, um, or the Battle of Five Armies, as the, as it is in the book, um, uh, Beorn kind of comes out of seclusion more or less, and basically becomes a leader of the Northmen, living in the Vales of the Anduin. Um, and uh, they they keep open the 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 road between the high pass and the fort of the Carrick, um, and it is you know heavy tolls, which actually raises a very interesting question, and, and that is what 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 exactly do they charge tolls in? Because Bayorn himself doesn't have any use for money or really metal at all, except as weapons. So I'd be very curious to know what sort of tolls do the Bayornings charge. Um, as far sometime before the war against the shadow, the War of the Ring begins. Um, Beorn passes, and he is succeeded by his son Grimbeorn, which I can't think of a of a more like boss name than Beorn unless it's Grimbeorn. Um, and we don't actually know we don't get nearly as much about Grimbeorn as we do some of the successors of the other kingdoms in Wilderland. Um, uh, because they are fairly distant from the events during the War of the Ring, uh, we don't have any stories of of like the the land of the Beornings getting invaded or anything like that. Um, we can probably assume some conflict with the the rising power in Dol Guldur, um, but uh, but beyond that, we don't have any specific mentions. We do know that you know again, they spent quite a bit of time fighting the goblins of the Misty Mountains uh, and keeping the 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 road between the Carrick and the High Pass clear, but beyond that, we we don't know. You know, we, we it's not like the Easterlings invaded their their country or anything like they did they did Dale and Erebor. So, uh, but yeah, um, they they do they they continue to be sort of a growing power, you know, or not a power at least a a, a major player in Wilderland. Well, I will say this: if you are if you are following along, say uh, the Darkening of Mirkwood uh, storyline, if I mm. remember correctly, there is a there is a quite powerful adventure uh, about Bayorn and kind of yes, it is it is one of the best things in that campaign. It for is. Sure. Uh, I, 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 I strongly really want to get to it. <laughs> Isn't it like right near the end though? Yeah. Yeah, you only got like 24 more years of game time, right? Yep, yep, yep. That's essentially where we're at. Uh, no, t- at least 24 more years of, of real time based on the pace that we're going at. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, uh, that brings us to the end of the show. 
Uh, thank you all for listening. If you have questions, comments, please post it on either our Twitter feed or our Google Plus feed um, where, or on a, a comment directly on the website. We'll get back to you. And uh, we leave you now with part two of Richard's campaign. Gentlemen, thank you all for participating tonight. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so the, um, uh, the as I said, the Bayorning um, died in battle with a with a, a large basilisk um, on the old dwarf road of Mirkwood, and uh, so the player went home and and rolled up, you know, didn't roll up, but got a new character ready to go and showed up with it. And so when I started out the session, I said, "Okay, Alberic." Um, you wake up and and he was like wait what i just i made a new character and like like and like he was very surprised and very confused and uh essentially um i had him wake up um just a you know on, on the verge of succumbing to his wounds and um earlier on he had made uh earlier on in the campaign um the character had made a sort of a, a pact with um uh, with it a, an elf who had been tortured in dol guldur um to have his spear um, enchanted so that he'd be able to uh, battle a particularly dangerous wraith named Mansbane. And um, in return, the elf said that she would see him again before the end and that she would um, um, she would ask him something. And so uh, woke up and in spirit bear form ran through the forest out to the um, you know, all the way to the shores of the Anduin, where he encounters this this elf woman, um, who is um, on a gray barge headed down towards the sea, to return to Valinor, uh, or, or to go to Valinor, and um, and basically uh, the Beornian, his name is Albrecht, was given a choice, and I had the whole thing um, quite poetically rendered, and I will spare you all, um, but if you've um, got a if you have a copy of the Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Um, there's a a song in there towards the end called the last ship which i rewrote for the purposes of of this session and um um and basically she offered albert a choice you can either remain to um watch over your friends through the ages or you can um sail with me into the west um the character chose to remain um and guard his friends not knowing exactly what that meant and um, his his um, in bear form, he returned to the site of the battle where his friends were were slain, um, and um, so passed Albert the Beorning out of the knowledge of elves and men. Um, but there are rumors of um, of three mounds in the middle of the forest, and of of a of, of a uh, a spirit which guards them in bear form and does not suffer the goblins to come to that place. Oh, that's awesome. That is. That was how. That was how Albrecht the Beorning went out, um, and he was the player was quite pleased. Very well done. That's well awesome. done. So yeah, um, Beornings are awesome. I, I would totally play one. You have been listening to the One Podcast. You can contact us with your questions and comments at the One Ring Podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Google Plus as the One Ring Podcast or on Twitter at the One Podcast. Thank you for listening.